Well, I left Denmark the first time when I was 19. Okay. That was 95. I thought I had to do something else than just live in Denmark and apply for the academy there. That was already my plan. I was not at all ready for it yet. But I thought, okay, I'll go to Paris and I'll live there and eventually I'll apply for the academy there. What do you mean not ready for it? Like yeah, not, uh, not uh, mentally ready or you didn't, you didn't have like the craft skills? Uh, the craft skills. Okay. Like uh, the theoretical skills, the solfege skills, the piano skills, all, all, all the things you have to be able to do to get into the music academy in Denmark. At the age of 19, they already require all of that stuff. They, no, but it, it doesn't matter what age you have. You need to be able to play some pieces by Bach on the piano. You have to be able to do like a Bach fugue or Palestrina counterpoint. You have to do analysis, all kind of things to get in. But they didn't offer that type of preliminary education in Denmark. Only actually at the at the academy level. So that's I would I would guess I don't know. In the United States, you have a university. You basically apply. Actually, I have no idea yeah, how you well, would do the, there. Yeah, the, the way it works is that you, okay, so you're either a composer or you're a musicologist or you are wanting to learn an instrument, and all you have to do is present a certain level of proficiency at yeah. that instrument, yeah. and then they accept you based on that. Okay, so here But, you have to all the, um, the other subjects that surrounds your main subject. You have to pass a test in those as well. And there's no way you, would, you could have gotten into the music academy there. So so you said I'm I'm not ready and there's no way for me to get in. Yeah. So you went to Paris. So instead of maybe preparing myself for one or two years, I thought okay, I'll I'll go to Paris. I'll is, I'll escape and I'll see what life how life treats me there and maybe eventually I'll find time to prepare and then I'll apply in Paris. How did life treat you? It it treated me very well except I never found time to make music or at least very very little. I started off as a bartender the first half of the year. The second half of the year, I ended up renovating apartments. As a job? As a job, as, a, as my job, yeah. And uh, without making more than just barely enough to survive, but it was great fun. But after a year, I thought, okay, this is, uh, I think I've got to get back to, to business and I'll never be able to make money earning to my living here and at the same time having time to write music and prepare for the academy you did for one year with like no focus just not writing any music just like putting down floorboards and serving mojitos just to pay your way but but also to, as a way to experience something about life no? the bartender job was horrible it was from i don't know when in the afternoon till five or six in the morning It was pretty badly paid. There was good tips, though. Yeah, uh, bartenders work on tips. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, but uh, I loved it. It was it was like uh, working like a, I don't know, a party slave. You know, it was it, working there was like doing uh, making a party, which also in the end wore you down, because basically going to work is the same as partying. And then at some point, five or six in the morning, you're just so full of i don't know energy and speed or i mean not speed but you know just uh, from running around and just pushing yourself to be at your at the highest level of attention and then just falling asleep was just impossible without i don't know how many beers while having breakfasts 
And it's kind of slowly turned into that you woke up just a few hours before you had to go to work. Oh, those are, yeah, those are terrible. So that's kind of, yeah. But it was a fun experience. I mean, of course, it was probably only fun because I knew this was for a limited time. And I just wanted to try something completely different. And it sure was. And you're glad you took that pause. Would would you call it a pause or how... Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm glad. Well, I would. Ask, I would call it like an escape. Suddenly, I got uh, a little bit afraid of uh, seeing kind of a too planned near future, just kind of taking a path that was just very one-dimensional. That's how I imagined it, like that uh, back then. Uh, which is, of course, I think it's just the general. I don't know. You know, sometimes you yeah, just no, want to go, go away. No? Yeah. Yeah. I'm very familiar with that anxiety. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. But what did you get? I mean, so what would you say you got out of that pause? Like what questions got answered? What did you, what decisions did you make after that, that you don't think would have happened after you were doing that year in yeah. Paris? Well, after that, I definitely got some more focus. I mean, after that, I was, if I had ever doubted what I wanted to do, I didn't anymore. So it was very easy for me just to like look ahead and set a point and then just work my way to that point and work really hard and to realize projects and to realize these little goals but I also realized how great it was to to work with my hands not that I never worked with my hands before but it's just uh, it was completely satisfactory work how does that translate to what you do now? It's a good question. I don't know if it has anything to do with the fact that actually nowadays I often I end up building stuff or putting together some electronics myself or making some practical solution which solutions which are in a way very homemade but actually in some ways also affects the music or the general aesthetics or that actually now now that you said that you were a carpenter it makes like i saw black box uh music that actually makes a little bit more sense now as someone who like renovated apartments and then all of a sudden you make your own little (laughs) apartment with a rubber band ceiling fan and exactly exactly (laughs) everything like that And and i don't think it i i think both things the satisfaction that i became from that job yeah and how I work now, it it both originates from something earlier. I don't think it was this experience in Paris that I then later used. But I think it's the same thing, just building stuff. Probably goes all the way back to building Lego castles as a kid or something like this. Just building stuff and the pleasure you get of looking at that finished result. So what, what drove you to sound instead of visual arts? I mean, you already do visual arts, but why a hybrid yeah. between those two things if, like, if the original like, joy came from putting Lego castles yeah. together and then yeah. later on yeah. kind of renovating apartments yeah. and making drinks? I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into it too much now, <laughs> but why music then? Yeah. Well, I think when I started making music, there wasn't that big a difference for me between doing the Lego or building whatever thing out of cardboard or something which is all something i got from my mother who makes sculptures and so uh, she always made very she made a lot of stuff for me instead of buying me all kind of toys she would make me like the what's the name of this star wars the spaceship of han solo you know the flat one you're talking to... I'm not saying I'm not a nerd, but okay. you're talking to the wrong kind of nerd. Anyway, yeah. anyway, she made me one of those out of cardboard. 
because we couldn't afford the plastic one. Okay. And stuff like that. And I think that all kind of started it. But so when I, at some point, started putting tones and harmonies together to make like a longer passages, for me, that was also building something. And when I had it all done and I could kind of, I had recorded it or when I later learned how to notate it, when I had it all done, I had the same feeling as when I had done probably even a better feeling but this is the same feeling of building something in a way so I, f I think in a way that is also very satisfying but i guess so i think it's the same but it's, it's also two different things and now i have also this definitely also this desire or urge to at least in every other project somehow get my fingernails dirty yeah some type of aspect of handwork yeah I'm interesting because this is something that I think about often is that when do you feel like you're done? Is it after you've built the thing? And okay, let's say the thing is a score with maybe the black box instructions yeah. or something. Do you yeah. feel like you're done then? Or do you feel like you're done after the performance? Like when is the finite, when is the point of definitely, finality? definitely at the performance. Yeah. And funny enough, I think more and more often I have the feeling that even after the performance, I know exactly what to revise. And then I'm actually working on with the piece. And it should be the other way around, right? The more experience you get, the more accurate you should be able to get it in the first go. But for me, it's almost opposite. Like earlier, I had a, I had a piece and I was satisfied with it. Now it's, I have a piece and only when I hear it, I know, okay, this and that I have to change. And that was too long and that was too short. But that comes with the assumption that you're not challenging yourself anymore. If you know how to do it accurately, then you're not challenging. Then you're not challenging yourself because you're just getting better at what you did yeah. instead of working on new stuff. Yeah. So even though your career is progressing and you know you're getting more stuff professionally, I think it's always important to not know what you're doing. Exactly. And, yeah. And it's like, let's say theoretically you've gotten really good and everything is completely accurate on the score before you put it down. And then it's perfect, or it's exactly how you imagine it to be. That's pretty boring, isn't it? Isn't that like a boring way to make stuff? Who wants to do that? Um, I agree. I agree. And I think at least also my music is going in a direction where you really can't. There's a lot of things that can't be predicted, or a lot of things that are dependent on existing for real. It's not. It's it's getting less and less abstract what I do, and so it needs a body. It's need. It needs a performance before it can can exist and before you can actually see if some things work it needs a situation it needs an audience it needs a time and a place how do you know when you're done revising something uh, when i'm listening to it and i'm satisfied but you're never you can you can never be a hundred percent sad have no. you ever been a hundred percent satisfied with the piece like that's I, exactly I, what i wanted and there it is i have often been very satisfied i don't know if a hundred percent satisfied but i would even say if you're satisfied to some point i guess it just kind of it feels like being 100 percent satisfied because afterwards you have this memory or this experience that was rich or that you're proud of or that moved you and then that's instead of thinking of the details i'm I would probably have this experience as a kind of a as something overall and even if i said okay there and there of course we could make that better next time it still worked so i actually have uh, i think I have, for the last 10 years, I've had, had these two different kinds of pieces. Ones that turned out to be, at least for me, so strong 
that a lot of things could go wrong and uh, and still it worked for me. Okay, it's durable. It's durable. It's something with the form, it's something with the material that just even if wow, they really missed that point and here they were completely out, but in the end they got together and they got this the right atmosphere and here they got some nice details and then it just works. It seems to work. Even though that technical accuracy is not there. Even though it's definitely, even though it's maybe 75% of what it says in the score. or And then I have other pieces that I have the feeling if they're not 120% right and with that uh, surplus of energy and virtuosity and if there's not this perfect atmosphere between the audience and concentration, it's almost embarrassing. Like so, I have these two different pieces, and I don't know always know which one is which. I mean, what makes a piece durable, like that? Yeah. Like, what makes it be able to survive really bad conditions and maybe not the best uh, performance yeah. situation? Yeah. Yeah. What makes it work on that level, and what makes what makes a piece delicate? Well, I I already kind of know what makes a piece delicate. It's easy. Yeah. It's easy to identify. I think it's easier to identify what makes yeah. a piece fall apart, yeah. like. And not work yeah. in terms of social settings and performance practice. Yeah. What, what do you think makes something able to only be seventy five percent, and then people still find a way to get almost a hundred percent of the message? I think uh, the easy answer is <clears throat> if there's a strong idea or if there's a strong concept, and also sometimes a strong form. I mean, that is a little bit more abstract because we don't necessarily agree what is the strong form but in a way a form that at least has so much meaning that almost whatever you put into it you'll still have some kind of uh, you'll you'll experience it a, in, yeah, a, yeah, in a, a cognitively way. resonant yeah. like form yeah. yeah and but i think if there's a strong idea of course already in the setup or in the material you'll have a part of a big part of the experience and the value of the piece but uh, at least my own philosophy has been to work towards a much stronger conceptual level and, and sometimes very concrete level, sometimes very uh, visual elements, but without losing the detail of the music, which is then now leading into actually another field. But So I think it's not, it's not an excuse in a way. Uh, I mean, if you have a really strong idea or a strong form, it still has to be interesting in, in the little detail. But sometimes it can save the experience of a piece if say one section just was completely off or something else was off or something just wasn't right still if the idea is strong it in the end it worked when in your studies did you start going for this also kind of visual element or is that were you always like that or is it something that you discovered when did you discover it you know no, no. um i think i was for a very long time very into the physicality of playing and that was slowly going in a direction already in this piece from 2001 it was going into a direction where i was very conscious about the choreographic aspects of playing in the beginning just as kind of an extension of a special kind of virtuosity where everything is just planned and every little movement makes sense and has a certain energy to it yeah there there are a lot of people that also have that as an interest yeah. Yeah. yeah but they ended up it's interesting because they ended up in a completely different place yeah. where you did and almost in a way that okay they're going for a very complex decoupled tablature that almost 
Def, it's definitely an experience for an audience that I think kind of leads away from clarity. Yeah. Where you're not even aware that it's about the choreography. You're just yeah. you're just saying that these sounds are unstable and they don't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. But the place you ended up was almost an opposite place where yeah. the the choreography is clearer. It's not as complicated yeah. and the sound sometimes result is more m- consistent and also very clear. And sometimes, I mean, in the newer pieces, it's almost uh, minimalistic in one aspect. But how did you end up in yeah, that? How did you end up in that place as opposed to the the ultra complex decoupling yeah. focused on movement and action? For me, the movement was always something that had a goal, which was to produce a lot of energy or a, an intense situation. And later, it had the ability. I remember in a piece already in 2005 or four. Uh, actually, in a piece from 2004, I was very aware of the fact that once you had a really strong gesture, if it was strong enough, you kind of had an action that had belonged to two categories, the, the category of the movement or the visual aspect of the movement, and, and of course, the sound that it produced. And so already very early, I was looking for two things, the energy, which... If you have different parameters of the choreography being too independent, you'll end up in a way, you may end up with less energy uh, than if some of, at least some of these parameters are unison. If, yeah, and, yeah. and also an unstable result. Yeah. People are going to interpret something that complex yeah. differently from each time to each time, where if yeah. it's more simple, then yeah. the intended result is clearer. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then this this fact that you had could have a situation where you had something which was at the same time a movement, maybe even a necessary movement, like to get from one point to another, but at the same time it also had uh, a sounding result. And I I found it intriguing to think of something where it wasn't really clear if the primary motivation for a certain action was actually the movement or the sound that it produced. A very simple example would be if I make a high note, a note on a guitar in a very high position, followed by a, a very low note, and only with so little time in between them that that there's no way that you can get your hand off the fretboard, off the strings. So you'll inevitably have the sound of the hand gliding over the frets, sorry, over the strings. So you have yeah. this whooshy sound, and. Normally, we would always think of the notes in the high and the low position as the reason to do this movement. But if I would do something in an ensemble or in an orchestra, actually kind of anticipating or ending up in the sound of the movement, so that that movement actually had just was just the natural sound in a musical structure that you could actually follow, then suddenly you had a situation where either the notes was just an excuse to make this movement that was then... Uh, actually the important part or that it was all equally important and that this movement was then belonging to two things at the same time a necessity to produce these two notes uh, within this time interval a rather short time interval and at the same time it produced a sound do, what, what do you notate i mean we're about to get into like nerdy kind of notating speak now but what do you do you notate the necessity or do you notate the result yeah um, both yeah. yeah, but sometimes I'm, I'm but, thinking like, but, a, yeah. like a really incredibly virtuosic guitar player yeah. could probably play a yeah. high note to a really low yeah. note yeah. 
and he he's so good that he kind of yeah. knows how to do that without yeah, yeah. Pro- producing the sound that you exactly. want. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, or he he might say, "Oh, let's do this a little slower so we don't get this horrible sound." Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, in this case I would always write the sound of it too. Or I would notate the action of sliding on the strings, but either in the text or in the score or during instructions, I would also probably instruct the player not to emphasize it as if it was clearly a notated movement. And there are other pieces where I was really conscious about this, where I actually thought, now I'm making something. It's very simple. I'm making uh, the sound of some kind of action on a woodwind, which is clearly going to take all the breath of the player. And then I'm giving him or her half a second to take another breath to make another sound. And I'm going to repeat this. Yeah? And so there's no way. Uh, I mean, I, I tried to make this break so short and I make this action so long and so loud that there's no way that anybody could make this inhalation inaudible. So I thought, actually, I don't have to notate this. But since I then later took this little inaudible sound and actually stretched it artificially, so to speak, and then so slowly moved from this fortissimo world into this pianissimo world, I chose to notate it. But in many ways, for this beginning where, it's, where this is the situation, there probably would be no difference in notating it or not notating it. How good is your notation really, though? Like, if you had to... Like, do you have to be there for these things? Or could you theoretically send in... Oh, God, I can't even forgot it... Uh, Back and forth, to and fro. Was that the name of it? On and off. On and, and off. To Sorry. and fro. Oh, God, no I problem. Suck. On and off, to and fro. Like if you had to theoretically send that, people who had never heard you talk had no idea what yeah. your music was. Would it remain accurate? Is it a is it a stable document that you're creating, or is it something that you have to be there and and fix and yeah. fill in the gaps? I think it's probably a good start, and it it explains most of what is has to happen but i think at least the last 20 percent is something that you either know or that i would instruct and all these little like we talked about earlier these little adaptions that has to be made in order to make it work for one player or the other some cello players are perfectly fine with just playing with their thumb when they do big glissandos or or quick skips from, from low positions to high positions Others prefer not to, and in both that's just one example, but in both cases, there would be another solution how to make the best natural solution of a certain action for for the individual player. So I have very different experiences with this. I have experiences where I have not been at the performance or at, at rehearsals, and I could barely recognize the piece. And I, had, I have other uh, experiences where I'm worried to death, and for some reason I missed the rehearsals and I come for the dress rehearsal and I'm just expecting basically a catastrophe and then it's, everything is just perfect. Is that bad composing away? Like, do you think that if they just get the document, they're performing it, it's completely off from what your vision was? Is that something you, you need to work on as a composer to in the notation? So it becomes more stable, or do, does it not matter? Does, as long as you're there, then what's the big difference? Or you just have to accept the fact that these things are, in a, a certain sense, unnotatable within the whatever notation system we've developed or you developed. 
and that you're never going to get that accuracy yeah. or the best that's possible in, in you know this world is that you just have to be there i think the best thing is that i'm there and I, I also really like to work on these pieces and make it work for different uh, ensembles on the other hand i have already now logistic problems very simple problems uh, not being able to be at in two places at the same time and also sometimes needing time for working on new stuff so i think any one of my scores i could take up now and revise it and many of them i will put in all the remarks i've i've said or all the questions answers for all the questions i've had during rehearsals so after doing a piece 10 times with different ensembles of course you know a lot more on how to get the right result so i could probably do that and hopefully i'll get time to do that but i think it'll never be perfect there'll always be room for misinterpretation or misunderstandings or i mean sometimes i get criticized for making it too accurate i mean writing too much texts for each action oh i see okay sometimes yeah. i get criticized for not giving enough text so also every musician has a different way a preference and but also a different way of uh, working on a score sometimes they read the preface sometimes they don't and so on so i think there's only one logic solution which is to find some kind of compromise or good representation but still rather simple in the score and then supply a video manual where if it's a very physical thing you just show it or you record some musicians that you worked with who can show it for reference because mostly the problem is it's very hard to explain with words but once you can show it it's pretty easy so what you imagine that somebody orders a piece and then with the piece comes the parts the scores and also a disc or a dvd or, or know, a link, some type of a link or, or to, a link to yeah, a video yeah, yeah, yeah. So you so you're okay with incorporating a lot of other types of technology that are included as part of the notation in order to definitely definitely yeah. already now I can hear that when pieces are being performed where there exists good recordings I can hear when people use these recordings as reference and already that helps a lot because then you're starting off not with just an abstract representation on paper but you already know what kind of direction to go at yeah but there's a pro that also reduces the amount of interpretation that a player could For maybe sure. maybe they're listening to a recording and whoever was on the recording made a very conscious decision to interpret it in a certain way and that actually could be something that stems far away from the notation yeah. like Im imagine if our only documentation of bach keyboard music was glenn gould People would listen to it and maybe think that they were supposed to hum in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. be really radical with tempos if yeah. it's the Goldberg yeah. variations. Yeah. You're blocking off other ways that a performer could uh, interpret something if you're For giving sure. them such a concrete thing. Yeah, yeah. It has pros and cons. And I guess you could probably say the same thing about the video. Because, like I said, actually sometimes one type of solution works for one musician and not the other one. So there's always a limitation in precision. I, I wonder what musicians think about that, about all of a sudden, like they're studying, reading these scores and, you know, they at some point I'm sure had to do more traditional notated music from the 18th and 19th century. And all of a sudden they're in a position where 
Now it's just basically a video that they have to look at, and they're they kind of. It's not like they're throwing their trading out the window, but it's a different type of taking in an information that they're not used to. Yeah. Are they yeah. are they fine with that, or has anyone been like, "Don't give me a video. I can I can figure this out notation." No, I didn't do much of the video. It's just a thing that I've been planning to do for years, but I have never really gotten to it. I have yeah. done video examples of like little sections, but I don't have anything organized. But I think. What's the difference of me showing it? Well, there's there's an interaction, of course. I think it should probably be communicated that it's really for the help, not as an example of the perfect result. It should more be like a key. Like if you're, you're reading all this text, trying to describe a really simple natural movement, and you just, what, uh, this, no, up, down, uh, all this, just see the action. Two, a clip of two two seconds okay going up down okay so it's really simple even though it's the notation of course is this and this this and this or so and so complex then you know what to do and i think that that can only be a help but of course it shouldn't be communicated as do exactly like this or it's wrong but that is even the problem in a precisely notated score i guess yeah but a nicely notated score doesn't have so many parameters as a visual, that's true. You know, yeah, yeah. As, well, some do. As the, I mean, the reality yeah. you're, you're talking about, you're basically capturing as pretty close to what the reality is. Yeah. And because of that, all the parameters are already there, yeah. Yeah. including like how many times they blink could be a parameter that <laughs> yeah. they think might be important, yeah. you know, if yeah. the, you know, if whoever's playing it is like yeah. twitching in the video yeah. or something. The music is in a way made for interacting interaction between me and musicians working on uh, a common product or the performance so that is of course the ideal situation and everything else will just be like a, a simulation or the second best but i think there are solutions on how to do this ideally when people are studying a piece for the first time i'll be able to be there and then they will know what to do the next time and of course also if i have the the ensembles that I worked a lot with, they know me already. Yeah, exactly. So when I'm writing a new piece, that, yeah. even if there's completely new techniques, basically they know what I want, they know what to do. So I guess my music is not really, or at least most of it, is not that well suited for that single performance of a big ensemble playing a lot of different repertoire and then moving on to the next. It can be done, but it's not the same. Sometimes you really, but I, you could say that about yeah, all music, I guess. Yeah, it's funny because I think of all the composers that I've talked to, it, it, it always seems to go into like two categories with me, or not with me, but with with the people about how they think about themselves in their own head. And there's this composer that is obsessed with the document because, in his like almost egomaniacal vision of himself, he's visioning this piece being played far into the future, eons of time, hundreds of years after he's dead. And because of that, it's important to him that every that there's no misinterpretation in mm -hmm. the document, mm -hmm. that everything can be, it could be set into a time capsule and put underground and then dug up 200 years later, people will look at it and know what's supposed to happen. Yeah. And then there are composers that are more like what you're talking about, which is you're not so worried about that. You understand that this is done as practically for now and you can be here, so what it's a combination of what the document is plus you fixing it plus also you doing other types of technologies that 
like maybe the link will be expired of that has the video of 200 years from now. Yeah, yeah. But that's fine for you because you're yeah. just existing at this particular moment where you can interfere with yeah. what's going on and fix it and allow that to happen. And I would, I surely fall into the second category. And I would say even more so because I even think like this in terms of notation, but I really at least try to think of things I try to write a music for now and not a music for in 10 years or in 20 years. And um, that doesn't mean that I don't want it to last or be also has some, have some value in the future. But in the question, what is more important? It is the premiere. It's the following performance. It's the present. And in a certain way, isn't that a healthier way of thinking about it? I also like the second way of doing it more just to think about everything that's available to you practically at that yeah. moment in yeah. time yeah. and using that to put them together even though it might not be there in two yeah. months yeah. you know and also trying to reflect in a concrete way about the means the media you're using and the time you're in and not just because of course everybody will say what they do It's a product of the time they live in. But I think uh, that is not always the case, or at least it's very indirect. So I like to actively somehow reflect on the media, the media, the situation, or the time, or something else. How do you do that? What do you actively think about? What conclusions have you come to? And yeah. how has that affected yeah. the literal like bow movement somehow because it all has <laughs> yeah, yeah. to filter down at some point to technique well i think the the easy answer also in my music has been to integrate very concrete elements it could be uh, visual elements or it could be samples and in the example of samples it is pretty easy to establish a connection to the real world since you can just use samples of uh, of everyday sounds but that has been a conscious attempt and a conscious goal for me to move my music away from a more abstract experience to see if I could give it some kind of or even better several ways of connecting with the real world still without losing its abstractness because of course you can also just do a, a field recording and that's not what I'm interested in then you have the real world uh, almost intact so that is also not what I'm interested in, but I'm is actually interested in keeping that special space of experience that we call musical experience or listening, and then at the same time to establish these arrows pointing out of that world or establishing connections from this parallel abstract fantasy world, music world, to the real world. How important is it that And again, we're like, okay, an audience is different every time. So you can't say like, you can't say that this audience is going to take it in a certain way every time. And then this one is going to take it in the same way every time. But how important is it that an audience is able to follow your very concrete description and intentions? For me, it has become essential. And now again, we're not talking about that the success criteria is that 100% could follow 100% of a piece. So, of course, that's not how it is. But at least to work with clearness and a certain degree of things being immediately followable or readable, I think that has been a part of this progress of going from something abstract 
to moving in a more concrete direction is it also takes place on every compositional level and i think it started actually with them for me it started with the formal level i had so many ideas that kind of drowned what do you mean drowned like they they didn't well nobody would ever be able to experience them as such so it was more like so at some point I, i i thought when people were talking about form i thought it was ridiculous because for me form in the end was just the following of of whatever events and talking about this uh, detached from the content i thought at least for me i had never seen an example where that would actually make sense so uh, at some point i thought how can you make form actually a parameter that you can experience how can you make it much um, a much more concrete experience and so i started working on that i think also from probably the whole obsession with the physicality of instrumental playing that is probably might even be something that i have from when i played uh, rock music in a band kind of this energy of the you know it makes a difference how you look when you play that electric guitar it makes a difference how low it hangs it makes a diff- it might not make that much a difference on the actual sound but it on the psychoacoustics oh god i'm just a yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> what kind of what kind of band i mean this is a little bit of a tangent but what kind of, what kind of band were you in that you were one of these like have the guitar down to your knees. It was a, a quite a complex uh, band, actually, because we did pretty hard rock, always with a certain distance. So, in a way, it was almost like a quotation of a style, this pretty hardcore, almost heavy metal. And we mixed it. It was pretty much in the time, I guess. We mixed it with other styles as well. And we were more zapping than we were living out a certain uh, musical style how old were you was this is this like a teenage band that i stopped when i was 18 okay okay but uh, right before you moved to paris that's it yeah yeah. Yeah. so very early i thought i think i i remember also asking musicians to sit in a certain way so that what you said the note stands didn't block the vision of what they were doing because i thought that was really important to see what they were doing kind of the energy of the work itself and so i think from that point I've been looking for something which is where you have a clear connection between an action and the result that you can kind of follow. The example of the opposite is the laptop performer doing something, some kind of interaction behind the Apple screen, and you have no idea what it is, or if he's actually just checking email. Just checking he, email yeah, and yeah. like a little pre-recorded sound. Yeah, is, yeah. Uh, Maybe he's just pressing play and then reading something for tomorrow. You have no idea, and. I just it's for me it doesn't work. You can also have all kinds of interaction and um live electronics, but for me I have to be able to follow the logics. Now that doesn't mean that a logic has to be one to one. It just means I have to somehow be able or let's say I like to perceive interaction as such. I mean, I don't like so much the fact that somebody raises an arm and then something happens and then he does almost the same thing and something completely different happens and you have no idea if that's a plan or if it's random or what. So I I like much better to establish some logics and then work with these logics. And I also very much like the fact that when you have such an established logic, you can also at some point break it. But that's a different uh, positive byproduct of of a logic or clear connection like this yeah and I, I think it also a positive byproduct of that type of thinking is that it also makes it easier for you to 
qualify your own work? If it's something that's so completely abstracted and, you know, where the logic of it has been removed five or six times from its original core of an idea, then it's almost impossible to ask a audience member or somebody like what you were going for. And it's going to be a wide variety of interpretations and you're also going to get a lot of, oh, I just didn't get it. But in a certain way, your music is so determined to be clear and have this kind of connection between these two things that you can almost say that if somebody if somebody didn't get it, depending on the person, of course, you can say, oh, I need to work harder to make it clearer for this person. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. How did you use this type of interpretation? Because I do eventually, want, I do want to play a recording of on and off, to and fro. Mm-hmm. So how is this, how was that approach applied to loudspeakers and vibraphones and double basses and saxophone well i think that's it's a whole different situation in a way i think that piece is uh but what's the narrative with the material yeah yeah, yeah. so there is still in a way for me a a, quite a clear narrative but it's still within the music it's uh, although it it tends to get concrete with the megaphones the three players and three instruments and three players with megaphones it's still a narrative it's an intra-musical narrative in a way or it, it has a musical sense. But the narrative, the, the very basic na- narrative of that piece is that you start off with an amplified trio where you have each megaphone touching or sitting very close or in the case of the vibraphone, following each step of the player, simply passively uh, or almost passively uh, amplifying the sound. And then, of course, you have this transistor ra- radio sound quality. But at least you have an amplified trio. And then... The most important narrative is actually the slow emancipation of these three amplifiers slowly becoming instruments uh, in their own right, so to speak. And at some point, actually, in many ways, taking over the ensemble. But at least in the end, you you end up with a sextet. Uh, So that's the narrative. But I think although the material is is in many ways abstract or much more purely musical if you can say it like that at least in comparison with black box music it's still in a way the same kind of musical idea that you that you start at one point and you slowly introduce something else but only in the speed necessary to make you interested and always balanced between how much longer can we go on with this material before we smell something new and there's a very limited amount of material and the different materials are quite separated or they're quite uh, characteristic in a way that you know which material is what. They're clearly distinctable. Thank <laughs> you. 
Every time you describe something and also the stuff that I've, the program notes on your website that I've read, 
it's always a very clear narrative. And I was almost taken aback a little bit by your lack of going into philosophical, more abstracted ideas within the actual program mode of what you're trying to accomplish. You're like, mm -hmm. this happens, then this happens, and then this starts to happen a little bit more, and yeah. then this part falls apart, and then now yeah. we're left with this. Yeah. That's like generally your program, but also the way you're describing it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A slight correction, which is at least two of the texts. Now, I didn't make texts for, I think the, la the last text is probably from 2008. Uh, on the webpage because I, I have no time to make these texts yeah. anymore. But uh, two of them are actually not program notes but actual descriptions which are more for people interested in programming a piece. So if you found a... a That's almost part of the notation then if you're... Exactly, people, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of also because sometimes you can't really see on the piece what is going on. Like if you have a piece with such a clear idea that people are playing and for each time they play they and they're playing Beethoven and in little fragments coming slowly together but as they're coming together they're taking their instruments apart so one is finally come together and not fragmented anymore I think that's the, the instruments one I read are, yeah. No? Yeah. so you can look at the score but it will take you some time before you realize okay this is this is what's going on and okay this is actually Beethoven nobody would ever know not that it's so necess uh, interesting that it's Beethoven but it's interesting that it's that is this tonal music that just never becomes in the end uh, tonal because in the end this other resistance appears. So that is a description for the score and I think it even says don't use this program note. Don't print in a program. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so because I actually more and more and that is also one of the reasons that there are no texts older I think than uh, 2008 or maybe there's some short ones is actually that I like less and less to write about what is going to happen and I more and that is actually goes along with what we were talking about before I like more and more to make everything even if there's an explanation in a way of a logic or a, or a background I like it somehow to be presented in the music if there's a new vocabulary sometimes I'm actually quite pedagogically describing this in the beginning of the of the music so you slowly learn the ABC of this piece and then we can move on to actually composing like one example I, I mean I, I don't necessarily think like this but when I write it that I think everybody has to follow but sometimes it's how it even works best for me I think that's how it works best for everybody not just not just you but like you having that thought in the back of your head or maybe even in the front of your head yeah. while you're doing something is you need to be thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, yeah. Why, how could you not be thinking about that? The chances that you're going to completely fail once you, the piece hits reality are exponentially multiplied if you're not thinking about that all the time. Well, it, it all depends on what you want with your music. And a lot of, uh, if, you're, if you're going for an abstract experience or a more poetical experience or something unspeakable, or something that can't really be expressed with words, which I guess we all are to some extent, but of course, at some point, yes, something shouldn't be clear. Some people don't want what they do to give a clear experience. But in case you do, which I do, and it sounds like you do too. Yeah, well, I try. That, I mean, I, I try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think definitely it's a nice philosophy to say you keep trying to reinvent the alphabet, but then when you present your new text written with this new alphabet somehow 
in the beginning of this text or during the the performance of this text give little hints to the to the vocabulary or to the to the abc you know let there be a learning process yeah, yeah. within and but i think the moment you perceive it as pedagogical probably you're lost so it's also a fine balance but i'll tell you this very specific example which is it still works for me but it's actually almost over clear but it's a piece for well at least the beginning of the piece is for uh, two octave glissando on a string instrument and a whammy pedal, which can, with this sound of the string instrument, also do a two-octave transposition or not. Basically, so, the, so the pedal is a pitch shifter? The pedal is a pitch shifter. So, it's, so you have two glissandos like, yeah, yeah. like bouncing off one another, so you're going to get these One is getting processed by the, others, yeah. by the other one, yeah. So you can either do them, one can make a steady note and the other can make a glissando, uh, or you can do the two glissandos in the same direction at the same time. So you have a four octave glissando, or you can uh, do it against each other, and there basically you have a very kind of unstable tone staying tone. more or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the beginning of this piece is just simply going through the different possibilities. When you're done with the first page, now mostly the the pedal is actually played with the hands, so you can see the movements going up and down, and you, in a way, you also choreographically perceive a connection or kind of a game between the movement of the pedal and the left-hand movement of the string player. But at least when this page is done, I think most people will know exactly what this pedal does, even if I didn't write it. And actually, I prefer that to writing like a little explanation. Yeah, the whammy pedal was invented in 1982 by Digitech, and it, what it does is, and the way I use it is to like, make a two-octave transposition. Actually, I made a program note like that, but um, you know, sometimes you have to write program notes. Yes, get, yeah, but, people, uh, but, uh, people, people make you do it, yeah. People make you do it. This is, I think this is a good example of a piece which is actually, when I think about it, overly pedagogical. But I think it still works. I think out of anything, it's the biggest challenge for that type of writing is orchestrational. Like literally the craft of how am I going to get a saxophone, a double bass, and a vibraphone, and three loudspeakers to actually work on the level of a homogenous sound like three incredibly different uh, things you know yeah. that and and in this case where you kind of make the claim and you do it very seriously i do the megaphone is an instrument just as the cello is uh, or the or the saxophone then you really also have to use it as an instrument you have to be convincing you have to find all those possibilities that you would expect from an instrument and you have to use it consequently and in a virtuous manner to balance it. Or it'll just be a gimmick or it'll just be a simple effect. So that balance, I think you could call a craft to, in this case, not integrate visuals, but to integrate something which is normally seen as extra musical with the music in a way where you don't end up questioning it. Do you think that's your biggest challenge is to not seem gimmicky? Well, I think it's probably something that makes my music the way it is. The fact that I'm very aware of this this balance, I mean... That's your biggest trap almost, right? Is mm -hmm. that like, okay, if you're going too clear and pedagogical and... Uh, too much humor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too much humor, then you risk the fact of it be uh, becoming yeah, I, cheesy, I'm, gimmicky. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm sure many people would say it's already too gimmicky. And I've also... I had one compliment, which I didn't take as a compliment, after a performance of Double Up. The orchestra the, thing. Yeah, for a sampler yeah. and orchestra. 
which was ah, it was it was great. It was uh, the the scene is in much need of a clown. Oh, that's uh, such a, how is that? <laughs> and I think it was. I mean, he he the guy he knows me, and I, if it was a provocation or something like this, he wouldn't have said it like that. I think for him it was really yeah, it's great. We really need a clown like to shake up things. But for me, it was never meant like that. Of course, there's always when you turn upside down any hierarchy. Of course, there's the chance that some people will think it's uh, will focus on that alone. But I always try to balance it by still giving much weight to the to the detail and the composition. And also, I bet you that person had no sense of humor. Like if that's what he thinks is funny, yeah. just like some quick wit, and then yeah. also like a chuckle maybe during the performance uh, that uh, acknowledges that what they see, uh, then that, then he's like that. I almost feel like that person never laughed yeah, yeah. like for five minutes at something uh, ridiculous think, that happened. I, yeah. One of my friends was reading a, a performance book, a, a performance theory book. And I don't remember the situation, but just at some point, he, I think he said, I have the right term for your music. And I thought he picked it from the from the book, but later, and I quoted that book. It's a guaranteed way to make somebody mad. <laughs> like, no, no, no. But the, right this term, is, this, let me nail you down. It has yeah. a good. It has a good ending because mm-hmm. I actually like this term. And so later, I quoted it, and I said, "It comes. I think it comes from this book that yeah. he was reading. Huh? Yeah. Well, I didn't read it myself, but somebody. And it turns out it was just he was just reading this about something completely different. And then he thought, "Hey, this is completely out of context." He just said, "This is actually, this is a good word." But he meant it as a kind of a provocation for me. But I, I kind of liked it. Uh, slapstick avant-garde. I mean, the slapstick, of course, is is the gimmick, the gimmicky. But in a way, slapstick avant-garde has kind of a contradiction in it because you know the avant-garde is in order to be the avant-garde. It's how can it be sla- gimmicky? How can it be uh, yeah, slapstick? I mean, somebody's already been there to make it to give it that label. Yeah. yeah. Or that it's not radical enough. And actually, I I think one of the things that I believe is actually you can, and maybe even more so, you can be really radical and immediate at the same time. And that kind of has the same traditional contradictory sound to it when we hear it. Because normally you think the more radical it is, the smaller the crowd and the more the, the pre-knowledge or you really have to be into it. To, to understand it, or maybe for the future we'll understand it. Why do we have that uh, relationship in our heads? Radical and understandable are two completely separate concepts that yeah. can't coexist. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. I still, I prefer the term that something is immediate before the, the word that you understand something, because understand at least has some very, very concrete meaning or associations. So, But if something is immediate, you might not understand it fully, but you take it in and you accept it and you follow it and you you work with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I would almost but, use the term visceral or something like uh-huh. that. Yeah, some, yeah. Some, something that hits you and you don't know why it's hitting you a certain way, but there's something there yeah. on the onset. And yeah. maybe it takes you a couple of ways yeah, to yeah, decode yeah. it, but at least something's hitting you. You're following to, yeah. still some basic things and you, you're not just either switching off or completely lost you you have a feeling of there's something, no? David Lynch, for example. Yeah, you yeah, cannot understand perfect. him. You cannot understand that. him because sometimes there's nothing to understand. If you really analyze it, at least I cannot always find a meaningful yeah. connection. But there's something about a guy like trying to like care for a cow fetus, like <laughs> exactly that, that make that you're like oh yeah, my yeah. god. Yeah. And and I mean everybody can. I'm not saying everybody will like it, but 
everybody know the elements that he uses. He uses very concrete, very familiar elements and he presents them in a way that makes them scary or strange or absurd. And this you can follow. You, it's immediate. You don't have to be a big David Lynch fan or you don't have to have studied him or you don't have to be a film expert or anything. It's on an immediate level. So I like this kind of definition of immediate. So why are these naturally seen as contradictions? The immediate and the radical or the other pair that we had before, the avant-garde and the slapstick? There's something about yeah. what we do and like the culture of abstraction mm -hmm. like in our particular field. And I, I don't know what a concrete answer is, but yeah. I think it's got something to do with the relationship between the composer and the document yeah. that it becomes about the relationship between symbols on a page. And that's where the radical thing is to be pushed mm -hmm. and not about the visceral to use that word yeah, again, yeah. effect on an audience member. Yeah. And because of that, the notion that if something isn't abstracted in that way, then somehow it's not going in this radical direction. But that's almost a way an easy answer at this point because the culture promotes that so much. And it might also not be because you first have to, you, you still have to somehow qualify to being radical in a way. Now, not that it's something that you have to be, but of course you cannot call everything radical. It has to have something fresh or brand new or something where you really put something upside down or do something really consequent. So what I thought for a long time has nothing to do with clearness or not, but I think it does have to do something to do with what you said, being very focused on the score and probably very focused on some details or some changes or a radicalness taking more place on this detail level, maybe in the score than being actually really recognizable in the final result. So kind of a lack of connection between the abstract work and the resulting sound or the resulting experience, which is then even more important. For a long time, I thought one of the reasons that new music has, in comparison to some other art forms, a relative uh, limited audience is not that it's too strange or too noisy or too far away from tradition. I actually believe it's because it's not strange enough, it's not uh, noisy enough, it's not far enough away from tradition. But at least I think sometimes to make something more interesting, you don't have to go towards what people expect because they'll also listen to it with the ears set to the certain listening mode that they would normally have when listening to this other music that lies really close to it. So sometimes you have to move further away to get out of this magnetic field, this specific way of listening. Good. Well, uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for also doing this. <laughs>